Welcome to another one of my podcasts and today I'm going to tackle the heady subject of competing in the uh, in the digital world. Off the back of a keynote that I gave at my uh, old school, I thought I would uh, try and reprise some of this into um, a podcast. A lot was uh, a lot was covered. And if we consider things like uh, if Facebook was a country, it would be the biggest in the world. Um, one in three people apparently would uh, give up sex rather than their phone. Uh, two people join LinkedIn every uh, every uh, second at the moment, uh, which is the equivalent of the entire Ivy League uh, school system uh, applying to LinkedIn on a daily basis. And 50% um, uh, of the global population is now under 30, and things like a college student has never licked a stamp, which when you kind of think about things like that and the new uh, workforce that is coming in, you know, there is a huge amount of change which is, is happening. And how do organizations how do leaders compete with this understand this how does the education system compete with this and understand this so i always like to break things down my regular listeners will know this and i'm very fond of looking up words in the uh, in the dictionary so if we just consider kind of the word digital a uh, number of um uh, meanings here we've got uh, of signals of data expressed as a series of zeros and ones typically represented by values of a physical quantity such as voltage or magnetic polarization uh, relating to using or storing data or information in the form of digital signals involving or relating to the use of computer technology uh, it could be a clock or a watch uh, or relating to fingers so I think probably the closest thing we've got here is probably uh, when we talk about digital in the business sense it's computer tech it's just technology, which you know has been around for 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 a while now. So why is this digital transformation or technology transformation actually anything new? Because it's always been there. Uh, my guess is because you're familiar with Moore's law, uh, the rate at which technology is now accelerating its capability, etc., etc. We as human beings and businesses just can't keep up with this uh, this rate of change. If we then look at uh, the word transformation, and again, I know you've touched on this on um, uh, other videos or other um, uh, podcasts, I should say, then this is, you know, you're fundamentally changing the way something uh, is. A marked change in form, nature, or appearance. So the word digital and then transformation is basically technology and fundamentally changing the way that uh, we do things. Uh, in this case, probably going to be working, could be internally, could be uh, how you market, your finance function, your legal function, HR function. You know, nobody is immune to this, but what do we actually do and how do we uh, actually uh, cope with this? Then if we consider things like, uh, you see the headlines from, this is from February 2017, when JP Morgan Software does in seconds what took lawyers 360,000 uh, hours. You know, a new era of automation is now in overdrive as cheap computing power converges with fears of losing customers to startups. So whilst I think this is you know a, a, a headline as it were, you know, if you go into this piece from the independent, it was very much JP Morgan just getting frustrated with uh, their suppliers and the supply chain not coming up with innovative ideas to do things more effectively, more efficiently. So they took it upon themselves. And 360,000 lawyer hours saved. You know, even if it's you know half that, that's still a huge amount of saving that JP Morgan can drive, which then will start to change the supply of that legal delivery uh, to the, the bank. And this is why you know, law firms have to uh, adapt to this. Uh, there's a piece again in um, uh, back in 2017, uh, Hong Kong venture capitalist fund credits a single member of its management team with pulling it back from the brink of bankruptcy. But the executive is not a seasoned investment professional or even a human being. It's an algorithm known as Vital. 
and Dmitry Kaminsky, the managing partner of Deep Knowledge Ventures, believes that the fund would have gone under without Vital because it would have invested in overhyped projects. Vital, which stands for Validating Investment Tool for Advancing Life Sciences, helped the board to make more logical decisions, he said. So this is an example where you know, we're putting technology to work to actually maybe rein in um, sometimes that gut instinct or the, you know, the, the heart leading over the mind to stop us making the, the wrong decisions. Uh, and Gartner, recent Gartner research, is showing that uh, RPA, so robotic process automation, you know, is the fastest growing market in enterprise software at the, um, at the moment. And that's uh, you know, it's a really interesting, um, uh, interesting play, that. And when one considers that in this day and age, we, can't, we want everything for, you know, for free, would we pay for Google? Would your children pay for access to you know, Instagram? Or <laughs> would, they, would you pay for your children to have access to Instagram if that meant their data wasn't given and you wouldn't have the adverts? Um, you know, whenever you want free Wi-Fi, you end up having to give some form of data, uh, so your email address, whatever it might be, that then gets sold on whether we like it or not. You know, if anything's free online, and we've heard this before, then very much you are the uh, you are the product and w- what is interesting is i was at an event a couple of weeks ago and uh, the european managing partner of ernst and young uh, was on stage and he said this in the public forum that ernst and young is now considering uh, free audit and free corporate tax returns for some of their client base and this is going to be an experiment for them so they're going to give their audits or corporate tax returns away for free uh, in return for ERP data, so enterprise resource planning data. So what they're looking to do is say, we'll do this for free, but we want all your internal data. Because if they can start to get their hands on that, they can then start to um, look at uh, trends analysis, and they can then start to sell that back into the wider market no doubt based on industry uh, level benchmarking etc etc and it's worth investigating uh, something that kpmg is doing which is what they call um engine b which is a fascinating insight in terms of how they're trying to you know pull multiple data sources together across all differing industries uh, to drive better business decision uh, business decision making processes as it were so the world of kind of free as we know it in the technology driven world or the digital world is not actually free at all it's actually driven by data and it's interesting to see how organizations are starting to consider this you know you've heard the old adage that data is the new oil or data wars so consider would you give your services for free but if that meant you got the data of that in that organization who you were servicing what could you glean with that insight what different questions could you watch what different answers could you um uh, could you give and of course, you know, when we are referring to uh, robots taking over the um, uh, taking over our jobs, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and there's this amusing Dilbert uh, Dilbert cartoon strip, where there's a robot sitting in the in the middle between Dilbert and his boss, and uh, the robot says, "I wonder whose job I'll take first. And Dilbert's boss says, "You could never do my job," and the robot turns to him and says, "I'm doing it right now," and the boss says, "You're not doing anything," and the robot says, "Right, let that sink in." So a little bit amusing, um, but of course we're not actually talking about physical robots. Uh, even if though I've seen, if you've seen the Boston Dynamics uh, Atlas robots and uh, you know what they can do around uh, where they've got to in terms of the parkour, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, it's quite it's quite staggering. If you haven't seen the video, I just just Google Atlas uh, Boston Dynamics, and some of the videos are quite incredible in terms of how they're. Um, 
their technology is progressing and more importantly is how human it looks which even though it's not it doesn't look human it looks like a robot but it's human characteristics it's traits the way it kind of moves is quite um fascinating if not kind of uh, disconcerting at the same time so if we consider kind of what is robotic process automation and we're now sort of hearing automation first as a bit of a strap line so lifting directly from the website of a business called UiPath, um, who are one of the leaders in this space, uh, robotic process automation is the technology that allows anyone today to configure computer software or a robot, in inverted commas, to emulate and integrate the actions of a human interacting with digital systems to execute a business process. RPA robots utilize the user interface to capture data and manipulate applications just like humans do. They interpret, trigger responses, and communicate with other systems in order to perform on a vast variety of repetitive tasks, only substantially better. An RPA software robot never sleeps, makes zero mistakes, and costs a lot less than, uh, than an employee. Which is all well and good because this is all about actually freeing us up from the mundane tasks to give us more time to do the higher value, more important work further up the, the supply chain, uh, if, it's, uh, if it will it be internally or, or externally. Um, but of course, all this is powered by technology, it's powered by um, you know, the, the magic of, um, of AI. So again, I'm going to break things down again. If we look at you know, the definition of an algorithm from the dictionary, an hour on a process or set of rules to be followed in calculations or other problem-solving operations, especially by a computer, a basic algorithm for division. Origin, late 17th century, who knew? Denoting the Arabic or decimal notation of numbers. Variant, influenced by Greek arithmos, number, of Middle English algorithm, via Old French from medieval Latin, algorithmus. The Arabic source Al-Khwarizmi, the man of Khwarizm, now Kiva, was given to the 9th century mathematician Abu Jal Muhammad ibn Muzza, author of widely translated works on algebra and arithmetic. So the world has been, you know, the word algorithm has been around for, for, for centuries, it would, um, uh, it would seem. And it's always been in, uh, in maths, it's always been part of the day to day election in terms of what we do. It's always been in computers since the computers, since the dawn of the, you know, the, the, the computer. We've always had algorithms, as it were. They're, not, they're nothing new, they're nothing um, magical per se. If we look at artificial intelligence, again, another noun, the theory and development of computer systems able to perform tasks normally requiring human intelligence, such as visual perception, speech recognition, decision making, and translation between languages, and um, so on. So, you know, AI is just a computer system. It's just a, a, a technology, if you will, that uh, will follow the rules of the algorithm to create output. You know, A plus one plus two equals three, three plus three equals six, and so on. And, um, uh, so forth. And then machine learning, the capacity of a computer to learn from experience, i.e. to modify its processing on the basis of newly acquired information. 1950s, earliest use found in an IBM journal. So the simple way that I have um, had this explained to me was you can think of, kind of AI, if you will, in terms of a cookbook. So the recipes in a cookbook are the uh, algorithm, if you will, so Victoria Sponge, and then the AI is you, the chef, uh, reading the and following the uh, the recipes per se. But you, know, you and I could follow the same recipe and we bake uh, fundamentally different cakes because we have our human flair to it, or not all that because I think we should add more or less sugar or actually want to add cocoa powder because I, want to, I don't want it to be a Victoria Sponge, I want it to be a chocolate cake, and so on and so forth. Whereas if an AI, so you know, piece of software followed the recipe, the algorithm, then you'd have exactly the same cake coming out day in, day out, um, until you tell it to uh, until you tell it to stop. And then you know, the machine learning aspect would be maybe looking at those cakes and then working out, okay, so with all these cakes, how can we make a better cake and, and so on. 
Now we're moving to the world of kind of the definition of artificial intelligence. So we start with artificial narrow intelligence, and again, reading verbatim, uh, narrow AI is the only form of artificial intelligence that humanity has achieved so far. This is AI that is good at performing a single task, such as playing chess or Go, or making purchase suggestions, sales predictions, and weather forecasts. Computer vision and natural language processing are still at the current stage in narrow AI. Speech and image recognition or narrow AI, even if their advances seem fascinating. Even Google's translation engine, sophisticated as it is, is a form of narrow artificial intelligence. Self-driving car technology is still considered a type of narrow AI, or more precisely, coordination of several narrow AIs. Artificial general intelligence, general AI, is also known as human-level AI, or strong AI. This is the type of artificial intelligence that can understand and reason its environment as a human would. General AI has always been elusive. We've been saying for decades that it's just around the corner. Artificial superintelligence, according to the University of Oxford scholar and AI expert Nick Bostrom, when AI becomes much smarter than the best human brains in practically every field, including scientific creativity, general wisdom, and social skills, we've achieved super artificial superintelligence. ASI is even more vague than AGI at this um, uh, at this point. So, you know, we're very much at the the early stages of, of AI, very narrow, um, you know, narrow task. So, for example, the Tesla computer software couldn't play chess, and the, the chess software couldn't drive a um, uh, drive a Tesla. But you know, we are all gearing towards twenty forty five, which is the date which is pegged at the moment as to be when we hit the singularity, which is when, in theory, um, we hit that kind of AGI or even ASI, where the machines will become as intelligent as, as the robots. And then they take over, and any of you um, who are familiar with the Terminator movies from the 80s, this is when uh, Skynet uh, comes to the fore. So what do, we, what do we do about this? What do we do about this in, in the world today, and how do we potentially prepare for it? Well, the key thing is we roll back to my earlier points is around data. So, you know, all sorts of quotes like, you know, data is worth its weight in gold for marketers. That could be CEOs, uh, heads of legal, heads of HR, heads of sales, doesn't really matter. Anybody who says, I think, in front of data-driven execs may be asked to leave. That's a quote from Katrina Neal. Um, and machines will essentially open doors to a better understanding of our um, uh, ourselves. But, you know, business leaders have now got to create, or rather promote, a data-gathering strategy as part of the overall overarching business strategy. That is the only way that we are going to be truly competitive is the information wars. It's going to be the data wars. And it's back to the point around, you know, I understand why EY is... is potentially looking at this and doing this because what we perceived 10 years ago as complex and high value to us now you know through RPA if you know RPA is able to conduct an audit with a final human double checking and signing off then we're not going to necessarily pay for that if we know it's on my computer software um, other than the final uh, the final sign off and certainly the big four you know each week one of them's in the press for something in terms of uh, some challenges they face in the, in the um, uh, in in the audit world so it makes sense so the the data piece I mean what is you know your data strategy for those that are listening to this do you have a data strategy it doesn't matter what division you sit in do you have a data strategy and then if we just kind of take this one step further and the way that quantum computing is going to change and i have to thank nigel wilson the cto for microsoft professional services for helping me kind of understand this and get my head around quantum because i'm not a quantum physicist or quantum specialist by any any shape or form but you know he shows two very simple slides so if you could kind of just visualize um a maze with the you know light bulb or the the, the end is in the middle and then um, if a computer is trying to, so classical computing we now refer to, the computers that you and I have on our, um, uh, on our, our laptops or desktops or whatever it might be, you create a program for it to try and solve that maze. What's 
classical computing will do is try every single route until it finds the um, uh, the right one. So it does it one by one by one by one until it uh, tries to find the right one. When, and it is going to be when quantum is involved or quantum computing is involved, the processing power enables it to actually try all the routes at once so it solves the maze instantaneously. And the way that he kind of breaks this this down is the what is referred to as the RSA 2048 challenge, which is the challenge given to a 2048 bit number. Um, you've got to identify which two numbers were multiplied together to obtain that number. So classical computing as we know it today, so again, that's the, the laptops you've got, the desktops on there, you know, a bunch of those all connected to um, uh, together. Um, they say this would currently take you a billion years uh, to solve to find the answer to the RSA 2048 challenge. Um, if we were able to leverage quantum and the way that quantum is going, uh, they believe that this would take you only 100 seconds. So suddenly we're moving a billion computing years into 100 seconds. And the, the challenge around this is this, this, this RSA crypto system, this RSA 2048, is the mainstay of internet commerce. So again, in theory, it would mean that quantum computing could crack anybody's passwords because the way that his passwords are done, RSA security, etc., is done around this 2048 problem because it's so complex. But if we're saying that quantum can, can solve this in 100 seconds, does that now mean we need quantum proof um, passwords per, per se? So it's it's fascinating to uh, to research. But again, okay, with that coming down the line in the next maybe five, 10 years, even 20 years, how how do you plan for the future? How do you plan your organization around that? It's, you know, it's fascinating. Um, Steve Clayton, the general manager from Microsoft AI, is quoted from one of their um, conferences last year. AI will complement rather than replace human endeavor in all fields. We encourage business leaders to replace the labor-saving and automation mindset with a maker and creation mindset. Which I think is interesting because you know, we very much focus here at DLA Ignite on um, bringing the human back human aspects back to everything so you know it is the the, the creativity side um, Gerd Leonhard refers to that which cannot be digitized or automated will become extremely valuable which I'll come on to um, so it's that maker and creation mindset that we need to you know bring back that's the human aspect supported by automation where uh, where appropriate and you know I always again focus on output so what am I trying to do today the same as it was you know, 20 years ago in my days of recruitment when I was doing 100 cold calls a day get a business meeting get a business meeting with the likes of um, yourselves potentially listening to this uh, podcast or those who watch my videos or those who read my blog posts but 20 years ago when none of this existed the only real communication I channel I had was you know doing the 100 cold calls smile and dial baby you know, greed is good the whole Glen Gary Glen Ross kind of approach to life fast forward today exactly the same thing nothing's changed in terms of my output remains exactly the same i'm trying to get business meetings what has fundamentally transformed back to the transformation piece is my lead generation or my prospecting so you know i now create podcasts i now create videos and i write blog posts uh, we do zero email marketing so we don't have to worry about gdpr headaches we do zero cold calling because it doesn't work in the european uh, uk european asian markets for sure um, us i appreciate is a different market in this um, uh, in this space so output remains the same but i've fundamentally changed my my mindset my belief system my approach to how we market and sell and so on so how does this what do we do how do we do this in the real world what what does this all mean and so you know we're going back to 
data and we're going back to social because that's where most of this data is you know is created from the, the business development sales and marketing perspective you know you've got crazy things like you know close to 2,000 searches every 10 seconds on uh, on LinkedIn you've got 57,000 stories viewed on snapchat you've got two billion messages sent on um, uh, on what whatsapp you know, it's just only going over one way 20 hours of video uploaded onto uh, YouTube YouTube is the second biggest search engine to Google by the way and you know the latest research on Simon Kemp. And we you know we are um, we are social. It's certainly worth following if you're not. Um, 3.4 billion people are now mobile social media users. There are 3.4 uh, billion uh, active social media users. You've got 4.4 billion internet users. So 58% of the world's population can now get online. So everything that we do is online. You know, back to that piece. If something's free, you are the um, uh, you are the product. And we then need to consider again and this is competing internally for your next hire this is competing for your your customer base uh, this is all very much around the user experience and there's a piece only yesterday the new cmo from salesforce you know she's saying that email marketing campaigns are dead or other marketing campaigns are dead i should say and that this is about the continuous story and the continuous you know user experience and everything is driven through mobile so your mobile first experience if you think about the things that kind of frustrate you and annoy you well why are we doing those to our own client base but more the next hire that you bring in uh, the gen z or whatever they're called now um you know 50 of the world's population is now under the age of 30. you know this is how these individuals live and this is how they would expect to communicate internally in an organization um, let alone how your market expects to be communicated with. Of course, there is the dark side to all of this, and we're all familiar with the Cambridge Analytica files. Um, the Guardian newspaper has got some fascinating stuff around uh, around all of this. You know, the whistleblower he describes it as "I made Steve Bannon's psychological warfare tool," and that's basically what it was. It's just leveraging data in a in a in a way that will lead us to where we you know where we are today you know things like politicians can't control the digital giants with rules drawn up for an analog era and that's an interesting piece because if you think about it actually a lot of the rules in business and organization are for the analog era they're not actually designed for the digital slash technology era so what do we do how do we go about this maybe we have to reinvent the um, the wheel and you know we are moving into the world of the the trust economy and you know trust as the, you know, tom peters says not technology is the issue of the um, the decade you know marlin uh, leiden from sap she was at a conference the other day speaking um, you know, this is what the this is the biggest challenge that all brands have and, and people actually because do we, do we trust anything that we see online um this is about building that trust back and then you think you see things like the fire festival where that festival that never happens but then to all intents and purposes everybody was lied to on instagram uh, by the influencers and they're now being subpoenaed in the york courts to find that two hundred thousand dollars you were paid for your post well where did you say there's an advert where were you actually going to be well what's happened to that you know what's happened to that um uh, that money as it uh, uh, as it were so we need to consider the, the kind of the trust economy over the next sort of five years. How do you manage that? How do you compete with that? How do you build trust internally? How do you build trust in the brand of, you know, for your next, uh, your next hire? And again, it's you know if we go for all back to Instagram, and I have real issues with it because, you know, in the influence of perfect world, it, it is a toxic marketplace, but you can't ignore it as a platform. And the amount of clients that we work with where they go well we're not on instagram and i go well you are on instagram just just search for your hashtag so you know hashtag microsoft hashtag barclays hashtag alan overy hashtag doesn't matter so if you're on instagram just search the hashtag of your organization and i think you'd be amazed 
at the community that already exists there because your employees are already just posting pictures with the hashtag of the firm they work at, which of course influences their peer group. So this is a good place to work at. This is a bad place to work at. That whole trust beast has kind of been taken out of your control. It's been taken out of PR's control, uh, if you uh, uh, if you will. And just to, uh, you know, I am a fan of Gary, Gary V. I know that he um, he does split, uh, split opinion on, online, but you can't argue with what he's done and what he's achieved. But he has this great quote, if you want things you've never had, you've got to do the things you've never done. Which then takes on to some recent research from Dell where 85% of the jobs that would exist in 2030 haven't been invented yet. So 85% of the jobs that will exist in 2030, so that's what, 10 years time, haven't been invented yet. So how the hell do you, uh, rec- you know, recruit for that? How do you manage? How do you manage that? How do you manage for roles that don't even exist? Facebook created an entire new kind of ecosystem in terms of market economy. Instagram has created entirely new, um, you know, market roles and so on and so forth. And I don't know if any of you who are listening like drones, for example. So when your kids want any drones, well, I would strongly suggest if you've got somebody who's pretty good at flying these things, to encourage it. Because believe it or not, PwC, one of the biggest accounting firms, consulting firms in the world, January as of January 18, um, they have launched a drone practice. So their drone practice is to help clients profit from aerial data, farming, real estate, um, mapping, all these kind of things. And they've hired a former RAF engineer. You know, the majority of organizations, to quote her, Elaine White, uh, the majority of organizations are still using drone data at project stage rather than embedding the technology into their strategy. I believe we'll see drones becoming part of business as usual within the next 10 years. We're already seeing early adopters and large-scale capital projects using drone data to enhance insights into their investments, allowing for better control of building sites and creating the definitive golden record of information. Insane. I used to work for PwC. And I left, you know, how many, many, many moons ago. The drones didn't even, the whole concept of a drone didn't even exist kind of 10 years ago. And yet here we are, PwC has launched a, um, a drone practice. So who else, what else is going to be out there in terms of we just have no idea that these roles are going to be. And interesting, we're starting to see major organizations now that, you know, scrap A-level results as part of their recruitment process because they realize they're missing out on a massive tranche of very capable individuals, but just because they didn't go to the right school with the right grades, you know, that kind of recruitment process just can't work anymore. You know, building on this, so what do we do? And this is, you know, anybody who follows me and knows knows me and knows this, you know, back to Gerd Leonhardt's quote, everything that cannot be digitized and automated will become extremely valuable. So what he means by that is that the human only traits, the creativity, the alleged direction of travel that AGI and ASI are supposed to be able to do, at the moment we're nowhere near that. So what we need to consider is what is it that you bring to the table? How do you um differentiate yourself in terms of you people still by people if you're a graduate if you're a college student if you're just coming into the into the working environment you know linkedin now accepts applications in terms of having a profile from the age of 16 get on the platform of course this isn't snapchat and instagram so don't be posting that kind of content and also be very cognizant of anything you're posting now will impact your ability to get a job in the future because it's there ad, ad infinitum. But start getting out there and start bringing your true self to um, you know, to the fore you know, in the B2B marketplace. Go and follow people that you want to you know, work for or work with. Find information about what's going, uh, going on there. You know, as Bezos quotes, you are, your brand is what other people say about you when you're not in the room. And this is what we need to be um, building out on. 
You know, so the key thing is when you consider your uh, your LinkedIn profile in this you know in this new trust economy. You know, they've recently changed how they describe their language. So your summary section is no longer summary; it's about. So they want you to tell me about yourself, not in a recruitment way, but about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? What do you do? At, you know, what what makes you what makes you uh, you tick? Uh, your experience section is now one single experience stream throughout the um, throughout the profile. So LinkedIn is trying to trying to shift kind of the whole narrative and let's kind of around storytelling around you know making this more human this isn't just about recruitment consultants trying to find the next uh trying to find the next job you know buyers and decision makers you know no matter which way you cut it uh, social accounts for a huge 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 part of buying process and buying decision making uh, processes so if you're not in this space again you're you're losing a massive opportunity to recruit to build you know, social in terms of an ability to communicate internally. This isn't just from a sales and marketing perspective. You know, this is everybody in the organization can kind of be social and create a, a living ecosystem, if you, if you will, which is again, how these, you know, how these um, the youngsters, the youngsters live. I mean, I came across a completely new network I'd never heard of before, introduced by one of the parents at the, the event I did on Saturday called Discord, D-I-S-C-O-R-D. And it's a whole gaming ecosystem. Um, Patreon is another one, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Again, you can then create content and people will then pay for it through the Patreon uh, network. It's just each, and new ones are bubbling up each day. And these youngsters, they are ahead of us, way ahead of us on uh, on all of this. So I suggest going talking to them and asking about things like Discord and Patreon and what else, you know, whatever else they're, they're on there. Um, social networks and blogs and tech messaging account for 75% of how buyers share information. This is from Blank and Otis and the G2 crowd. So again, if you're not playing in this space and you know, do a whole piece around dark social, which is what this is referring to, dark social, fascinating. If you're not familiar with it, Google it. I will do a piece on it later on um, uh, in, this, uh, in this series. So you've just got to start connecting and building a community. As I said, both internally and out there, it's a big old world. Six hundred thirty million people now on LinkedIn, two billion plus people on uh, Facebook, Insta, Snapchat, WeChat, YouTube, whatever, wherever these communities uh, these communities are. And you know, there's a great piece which I found on um, uh, LinkedIn the other day from Gabrielle Patrick, head of ways of working at Deutsche Bank, where she cites Alison Clark for an event and digital is democratic. You know, this is the beauty of digital. Um, you know, it allows you to, she says, make fact-based decisions, be honest, transparent, and flat and hierarchy. So any one of us has a technology in the palm of our hand to go and build a business tomorrow, should we wish to. You know, it is a, it is a flat hierarchy structure now. Um, anybody can go and uh, can go and do this. But in terms of, uh, you know, if you're thinking about the startup or you want to be the next Facebook or the next, you know, um, Jack Maher or whoever it may be, you know, all these, you know, huge Evan Siegel from Insta uh, or Snap, sorry, you know, all these individuals, um, uh, they're typically outliers and they've typically come from extremely wealthy backgrounds anyway. So um, if things go wrong, it doesn't really matter. And they're probably from the majority from, from kind of Ivy League or Oxford type sort of, um, in, you know, education. So they are highly intelligent in their own right. I'm not saying you don't, you don't have to be that intelligent in order to do these things. It's just sometimes coming up with a good idea. But recent research um, from Harvard Business Review showing that actually the average age of people who founded the highest growth startups, so the highest growth startups is 45. And older entrepreneurs are more likely to succeed. And I've, part of me believes this. You know, I turned 41 last week. Um, do I describe to see myself as an entrepreneur? No. Have we started a business? Yes, we have. We're three years, almost three years old now. Um, but I couldn't be doing this without 20 plus years experience that I got 
in business, if that makes um, uh, makes sense. Now, there is some argument that that experience could then pre- prohibit me from taking risk and making um, uh, making decisions, but it's just worth considering that we don't always hear about the successful startups because they're not they're not uh, they're not new newsworthy. So this is all about storytelling. This is all about building your narrative, building your story as to why you, why your organization, why your team, what makes you unique to the other person who on paper does exactly the same thing on you. And as I've, I've said about this before, this is about not about idea counts. So this isn't writing you know, war and peace, but you know, research shows that we now as human beings have a shorter attention span than goldfish. So I think it's like sub six seconds or something to that, uh, to that effect. And if you've ever seen Snapchat, I mean, it's insane. Snapchat is just fast, rapid, quick fire. That's how the next generation of um, uh, employee in, all, in your marketing audience can consume content. It's short, sharp, quick, quirky, typically video uh, video or meme, uh, meme-led. So it's about ideas, it's about changing the way your audience thinks about you in terms of what you're here to, um, uh, to do. Uh, some simple tools that you could use, Flipboard or Feedly. So they're both kind of freemium-led models, but are brilliant content curation tools. So sign up to them, type in what you're interested in, and it just acts as a news aggregator for you. It just runs really interesting, insightful articles that you can learn from, you can reshare, you can repost into your um, uh, your networks. Because you're absolutely, you'll be aware of my, you know, my say, hour uh, mantra at DLA Ignite, which is market through your network or sell through your network, not, um, uh, not to it. But you know, in this in this kind of digital age, one has to you can't escape from the fact that we're on twenty four seven. And yes, you know, I fully recognise there are cycle there are some massive health issues um, with this. And um, a great quote from a law firm event, but this is applicable to anybody. You know, a lawyer is only as good as their mind. Actually, as human beings, we're only good as your mind. If you're a chief exec, if you're a PA, if you're a sales rep, a marketer, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. You know, your mind is still your your insight, your knowledge, your what you bring to the table is only is only as good as the healthiness of your um of your mind. So we need to uh, you know look after this. But you know what what does this mean are we going to be moving into a world where we're plugged into vr and the cables and we're constantly uh we're constantly on or do we need to kind of take a step back and just just think about what or how how do we become more human dare i say in this uh, uh in this digital age and you know i i, I end with uh, well i end with this from from gerd leonhard which i think is um uh an interesting take on things Quite a few people saying that artificial intelligence is potentially life-threatening existential risk for society for us as humans and i would tend to agree except for on the time frame of this you know right now what we're seeing is that most of the intelligent machines are really fancy software we're still not at that point where we can say okay that is definitely going to redo the fabric of humanity the next level is artificial super intelligence asi and that is called the intelligence explosion which is computers making decisions, cutting us out, sidelining us, or eventually just completely treating us like pets. The much more burning question today is not if machines will take over, but if we become too much like the machine. You know, by essentially the machine calling the shots and then we just kind of say, okay, you know better, right? That is a much bigger danger. In my book, Technology versus Humanity, I have the final conclusion is that we should embrace technology, but not become it. 
And this is a very important message because there's no way that we can go back on technology and put it back in the can. That option really isn't available to us. So the conclusion is that we need to use technology to our purposes so we can stay on top of it, we can be in the loop, it can benefit us. But we should not let technology take over the, the core of what we are, our thinking, right? our relationships, our engagement, our emotions. And we should not reduce our humanity because it may be better fit for machines. In my view, the future is not about us becoming more like a machine, you know, exponentially powerful, so to speak, but to become exponentially human. We need to decide as to who we want to be. Do we want to be technology or do we want to remain human? Interesting insight from from uh, Gerd Leonhard there. I highly recommend that book. So, um, as ever, uh, thank you very much for uh, giving up your uh, your time to listen to to me and my uh, my thoughts. I really do appreciate it. Uh, if there's anything you'd like me to cover, then um, you know get in touch. You can follow me on uh, Twitter at underscore Alexander Low. I'm on Instagram at digital underscore Alexander Low. And of course, you can find me on. Um, uh, LinkedIn. Just look for the digital soothsayer. Otherwise, um, enjoy the rest of your day, whatever it may entail, and um, until next time.